0: Those words are still so true and so powerful today, and we started planning this service about a year ago, and we were saying to Jay, hey, what would you like this celebration service to look like, and came up with a couple of things, and he said, boy, it sure would be neat if we could get my nephew, Matt Proctor, who's the president of Ozark Christian College over in Joplin, Missouri, to come and and do the message that day. So it is my honor today to introduce you to Jay's nephew, Matt Proctor. Well, good morning. I am honored to be with you here at First Christian in Jacksonville. And as was mentioned, uh, Jay Cook is my uncle. And so I am especially honored uh, to be here today to celebrate him and especially to honor Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, would you go ahead and grab them? We want to jump right in today. Uh, open them up to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. The title for this morning's message is Passing the Baton. Passing the Baton. We want to look at that uh, text in just a moment. Let me begin with a Quote, Andy Stanley said your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, but someone you raise. Can I say that again? Your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, but someone you raise. Now, when I was in high school, I, I ran track. I was the third leg of the 4x800 meter relay. And my coach used to say to us, boys, races are won and lost at the passing of the baton. I knew that no matter how hard I had run my leg of the race, my job was not complete until I had passed that baton to the next runner. There is no success without a successor. Now, that's true in track. That's also true in life. Somebody put it this way. uh, The legacy of each generation is the leadership of the next. No matter how impressive your accomplishments may be, your legacy is not complete until you have raised up those in the next generation who will carry on your work after you are gone. And so, whether it's at work, whether it's in your family, or whether it's right here in church, your job is to pass the baton. Now, nobody understood that better than the Apostle Paul. you got your Bibles open there to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul, of course, had done many great things for God, but Paul knew that his job, his ministry, was not complete until he had raised up that next generation of kingdom workers. And Timothy is the young man in whom he had invested himself the most. For about 15 years, he had taken Timothy under his wing, poured himself into this young man, taught him, mentored him. And now, in 2 Timothy... Timothy is a preacher in the city of Ephesus, but he's in a very tough ministry. It's a hard church. Number one, there there are persecutors outside of the church. That's strike one. Strike two, there are critics inside the church. And strike three, well, Timothy is young. He's very inexperienced. I had a Bible college professor one time who said this. He said, to succeed in ministry, you really only need two things. You need gray hair and hemorrhoids. He said, the gray hair will make you look distinguished. And the hemorrhoids will make you look concerned. <laughs> I don't know about the hemorrhoids, but Timothy didn't have the gray hair. He did not look distinguished. And so the folks there in the church at Ephesus, they were looking down on him. Paul will say to him in 1 Timothy chapter 4, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. But he had to write that because they were looking down on him because he was young. And they were dismissing this kid, not giving him any respect. Who is this, you know, young man wet behind the ears? And Timothy was discouraged he was feeling like quitting and so Paul picks up his pen and he writes him this letter of second Timothy now Paul writes to him from prison now you might think yeah so Paul was like always in prison and you would be correct Paul is what we call a repeat offender <laughs> always getting thrown in jail for preaching the gospel but this time is different because this time Paul is seated on death row in just a few short weeks he will be executed second Timothy last letter that we have from the hand of Paul And Paul writes to Timothy and he tells him, I'm I'm about to die. In 2 Timothy 4, he says, my life is being poured out like a drink offering and the time has come for my departure. I, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And Paul knows that races are won and lost at the passing of the baton. And this letter of 2 Timothy marks the moment of exchange. Paul's message through this whole letter is this, Timothy, carry on my ministry. Timothy, take the baton. Hold on tight. Run hard. Don't quit. Joshua followed Moses. Elisha followed Elijah. Now, Timothy, you've, you've got to follow me. Carry on my ministry. Take the baton. And now I want you to hear what Paul says next to Timothy. If you've got your Bibles open there, 2 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 2, Paul writes to him these words. He says, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Now you hear what Paul is saying there, right? He's saying, Timothy, I have passed the baton to you. Now you pass the baton to others who will in turn be qualified to pass the baton to others. Yet others someday. Let the kingdom relay continue. Let the chain of ministry be unbroken. The legacy of each generation is the leadership of the next. Pass the baton. Now, you here at First Christian Church in Jacksonville, you are in a passing the baton season. And as you transition from one preacher to another, I want to look at this letter of 2 Timothy very briefly with you this morning because I think this letter of 2 Timothy will put three items on your to-do list as a church. Three items. Here's, Here's the first thing that I think you're called to do. Celebrate the old runner. As you pass the baton, celebrate the old runner. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, when Paul says, "'I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race,' The text goes on to say, and now there is in store for me a crown. Paul is saying that there is a a laurel wreath of victory waiting for him at the finish line. There will be a celebration, and of course he means the celebration that we will have at the end of time with Christ, but there's also a celebration that's appropriate even now in this life. Romans 13 says that we are to show honor to whom honor is due. And Jay and Jane, in their ministry here at FCC, they have run a good race. And it is appropriate for us this morning to celebrate that, to honor that. Now, personally, I am very grateful for Jay. Uh, as I mentioned, Jay's my uncle, and in fact, I, I brought some pictures here with me this morning. Uh, this is Jay at his wedding. Uh, look, look at that man. Uh, look at that face. He is a child, all right? And, uh, and, and my mom right there is Jane's sister. She's the one standing right next to Jane. By the way, today is Jane's birthday. I think we ought to just clap and say happy birthday to her. So that's a good thing. And. Uh, And so I've grown, I was four years old when they got married. I've grown up knowing. Jay, all my life. Now, my dad is I'm a preacher, but my dad is not a preacher. And and Jay, in fact, is the only preacher in my extended family. And so for years, Jay has been my model. He was my model of what a minister looked like. And as you can see in this next picture, I always grew up thinking that a minister should be solemn and reverent, dignified, and serious. Now you know that those are not words people use of Jay. Everybody has a crazy uncle. Mine was Jay, all right? He was nuts. and I loved it. Jay loved to laugh. He loved to tease. He loved to joke. I can still remember I brought another picture. This uh, picture was uh, taken when I was 13 years old, and uh, I was at church camp, uh, 1983. And that's Jay there that summer. Uh, he was, at church, this, was taken to church camp with his friend, uh, Kim Millet. And I can still remember there at camp, Jay would raise his shirt up, and he would show the junior hires his belly button, and he'd say, you see that right there? That's an old bullet wound from when I was fighting in Nam. <laughs> And that's my Uncle Jay right there. Now, now I have a theory, and my theory is this. I think Jay always secretly wanted to be a hero. Now, maybe maybe sometimes it was a war hero uh, or maybe sometimes it was a sports hero. Next picture. He's always loved a uh, basketball. Maybe, maybe instead of a sports hero, it's a guitar hero. He's always loved music, a musical hero. Or how about this one? Next picture. Maybe he wanted to be a TV hero because look at that mustache. Can you say Magnum P.I.? <laughs> Don't tell me that's on accident. He did that on purpose. He wanted to be Magnum, all right? And, and I think he's always wanted to be a hero. In fact, I think, I think secretly he's probably always wanted to be a superhero. Look at this next picture. That picture right there is of Jay and of his brother Tim. Now, I heard a story once, and, and I don't know if it's true, and if it's not, I don't want to know. But here's the story that I heard. Uh, when Jay and his friend Kim Millett were in college together down at central in Momerly uh, they lived in the dorms together and they're they're both big guys if you know his friend Kim Millett, Kim is six foot eight inches tall and Jay was uh, six foot four inches tall until he got old and started shrinking. and uh, and <laughs> And Kim and Jay, this is what I heard, they're in the guy's dorm at college, they would strap on masks, they would tie sheets around their neck for capes, they would strip down to their underwear, they would put lighter fluid on their hands, and then they would light it up. And they would run down the hallway, capes flowing out behind them with their hands on fire, pretending to be superheroes. Now, if the bad guy Thanos ever comes back to destroy our galaxy, I want those guys on my side. I don't know about the fiery hands, but Kim and Jay in their tidy whities scare any bad guy. I am right about that. You know I'm right. All right? He wanted to be a hero, but alas, alas, Jay did not get to be a superhero. Instead, God called Jay to be a preacher. Now, you know that in our culture, preachers are not viewed as heroes. Uh, Preaching, in fact, is usually not a thing that's celebrated. Preaching is a thing that is mocked. I mean, you've heard jokes about preaching. I've heard jokes about preaching. I will tell you a joke about preaching. You've heard the one about the preacher, the elder, and the deacon who went deer hunting. They're out in the woods together. Huge buck crosses the clearing. Preacher and the elder both raise their rifles at the exact same time. They fire simultaneously. The buck goes down, but they don't know which one of them shot the deer. Well, deacon hops up and he says, Wait right here, men, I'll go check it out. I'll tell you who shot the deer. He runs across the clearing, examines the buck, stands back up, hollers back. It's it's the preacher's buck. The preacher shot the deer. The elder says, Well, well how how do you know? How can you tell? And the deacon says, Well, I I can see right here the, the bullet went in one ear and right out the other. <laughs> And that's how our culture views preaching, all right? In one ear, out the other, preaching's a punchline, preaching's a joke, preaching doesn't make any real difference in the real world, and preachers certainly are not heroes. But the Bible paints a different picture. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says this, in his wisdom, God chose the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. Did, did you catch that? God chose preaching to save the world. In fact, Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 Devote yourself to preaching and teaching, for if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. What? I, I thought only Jesus could save people. Of course, only Jesus could save people. But what Paul says is this He says that, that a preacher when he stands up and he opens up his Bible, even though he may not be wearing a cape, he actually gets to save other human beings because this book right here, it has supernatural power. Can I tell you when I'm reminded of this the most? It's, it's when I'm preaching a bad sermon. Now I'm sure this never happened to Jay in 36 years, but sometimes when I'm preaching on a Sunday morning, I can just tell, "Hey, it's not working today. <laughs> I am not connecting." And I had a friend in Bible college one Sunday. He went out to this little bitty church to go fill the pulpit, and and he could tell that morning pretty quick. Boy, this sermon is a clunker. It was just kind of a belly flop right off the, the end of the stage. And 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 you know, he knew it was bad. They knew it was bad. But church people are super nice. And so afterwards in the lobby, he's shaking everybody's hands as they're leaving, and, and they're saying, oh, nice job, nice job, nice sermon, nice job. One lady said, nice try. <laughs> <laughs> I have preached my share of nice try sermons, all right? And on those Sundays when I can tell this, this one's just not going very well, I just kind of want to get done as quick as I can and go home, and I'll just try again next week. It's a little embarrassing. But God, in his great celestial sense of humor, will often give me my best response to my worst sermons. Just to kind of remind me that it's not about me, you know. And, and so I, I preached a sermon that I, I knew wasn't very good, and we're singing the invitation song, and we're just doing one verse because I want to get out of there as quick as I can. But lo and behold, folks are, folks are walking down the aisle. People are making decisions for Christ. Here's, here's some lady, and she's shaking my hand, and she's saying, oh, you, you have no idea how that touched me. And I'm thinking, you're right. I have no idea how that touched you. And and yet, and yet, if I'm honest, I do know how that touched her because as ineffective as my words may have been, God's Word is still divinely powerful. Isaiah chapter 55, God says this. He says, my word which goes out from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish the purpose for which I sent it. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12 says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. This book is divinely powerful. And I, tell, I teach preaching classes at the Bible College and I tell my preaching guys that the pulpit, the pulpit might be the most powerful place on the planet. And when they stand up on a Sunday and they they open up their Bible, oh, physical eyes, they may just see some guy getting ready to talk for 30 minutes on a sleepy Sunday morning, but but spiritual eyes, they see something else. Because I'm telling you that at that moment when he opens up the Word of God, there are 10,000 angels leaning over the balconies of heaven holding their breath. Wondering what will happen if this time these souls really hear and there are 10,000 demons that are glaring up through the gates of hell, licking their lips, hoping, hoping that no one will pay attention. The air is electric, charged with supernatural possibilities because all of heaven and all of hell knows that at that moment, eternity literally hangs in the balance. And I've been preaching for 30 years, and I can tell you that after 30 years, I have seen people who have given the rest of their lives to Jesus Christ because they heard a sermon. I have seen people who chose not to commit suicide after all because they heard a sermon. I've seen people give their marriage one last try. People give up lucrative careers to go be missionaries. People break off ungodly relationships or become foster parents or give money or share Christ with a friend or or repent of sin, all because they heard a sermon. I I have seen people find hope in the midst of grief, comfort in the midst of pain, grace in the midst of guilt, guidance in the midst of confusion, and power in the midst of weakness, all because in in the fumbling, bumbling, stumbling words of a preacher, they heard the word of God. The pulpit is the most powerful place on the planet. And for 36 years... Jay and Janie, they have loved this church and they have shepherded this church and they have served this church. And for 36 years, Jay has stood in this very pulpit and he has faithfully proclaimed the word of God. And they may never make a movie about him like they do about Superman or about Batman or about Captain America. But you make no mistake about it. He has done a hero's work. And this morning, we say thank you. Well done, good and faithful servant. First job on your to do list, celebrate the old runner. Second job on your to do list, support the new runner. In a time of transition and change like this, it can can be tempting to be kind of like those folks in the Ephesian church. Look down on this new young preacher, wet behind the ears. What in the world does he know? He doesn't do things like the old guy does. That's one of the reasons that Paul wrote this letter of 2 Timothy. He knew that not only would Timothy read this letter, but that the letter would be read in front of the entire church there at Ephesus. And Paul knew that his job was to be the old guy who tells the other guys that the new guy is a good guy. And so when Paul writes this letter and it's read in front of the church, what's the very first few verses say? 2 Timothy 1-2, he calls Timothy, "...my beloved son." And the church hears that, and they get the message. Paul supports this new guy. We better support the new guy too. And Jay has done that for Shane. Jay has passed that baton to Shane, and now it's your job to support the new runner. Will you be his encourager? I can tell you as a young preacher, that makes all the difference. I took my first full-time ministry when I graduated from Bible college, 23 years old. I went to go be the preacher of a little bitty church down in southern Illinois, down in Carbondale, Illinois. And never forget the very first day there at this ministry. I was in my office and I was unpacking my books, putting my uh, books up on the shelf when into my office walked John Lamb. Now, John Lamb was a deacon there in the church. He had been the chairman of the search committee, the pulpit committee that had called me to be the preacher. He was coming to to check on the new preacher. And, And what you need to know is that John Lamb was a man's man. John Lamb was, was this great big guy. He's a college athlete. He played college ball, and, uh, and he, he, you know, he's tall. He had this uh, flat top, this crew cut, and he wore cowboy boots and a belt buckle, and he drove a pickup truck with a gun rack, and he raced hunting dogs. Man's man, okay? And, uh, and John Lamb came in, and, and he, said, uh, he said, hey, he said I'm glad you're here. He said, if you need anything, you call me. He says, because you and me now, we're blood brothers. Now, this is Southern Illinois, mind you. (laughs) And I'm thinking, you're not going to make me cut our fingers and do that thing, are we? And he didn't, but he just said, you need anything, you call me. I said, okay, all right, I will. And I had absolutely no intention of calling him because I was 23 years old. I was young. I was strong. I was full of energy. I was sold out to Jesus, got a brand new Bible college degree. I'm going to do this thing and it was a small church, and in a small church, you can kind of do it all, and so I tried to do that ministry all on my own. I mean, I'm the one that cut the grass. I folded the the bulletins. I prepared the communion. I made all the calls to all the shut-ins. I wrote the sermons, and and I I just did just about everything. I remember one particular Saturday. It was about six months into that ministry, and I drove uh, the church van into the parking lot of our church at about 11 o'clock at night. I'd taken a big group of guys to a men's conference all day that day, and and I was driving the van back and we pulled in about 11 and everybody piles out goes gets in their car I'm waving them goodbye we'll see you in the morning see you in the morning and I did not go get in my car and drive home I went back into the church building here's my confession I didn't have my sermon done for the next morning too busy trying to do everything else you know and so I went into the church building but before I went to my office to type the sermon I came into the sanctuary and I went and turned the faucet on in the baptistry our baptistry had a slow leak so we didn't keep it filled up we just fill it when we knew a baptism was coming I knew we had one the next morning and so I went into the into the sanctuary turned the faucet on get that baptistry start filling and I went back to my office to go type on this sermon well I I you know began to type and work on the sermon pretty soon it started coming together and, and you know things started working and, and, and the sermon was flowing and the sermon wasn't the only thing that's flowing two and a half hours later okay it's about 1 30 in the morning i hit print on the sermon and that's when i suddenly remember oh no the baptistry well i run out of my office stepped into the linoleum hallway right outside of our sanctuary splash there's standing water out there this is not good I, I walk in, I run in the door of our sanctuary. I had overflowed the baptistry. We had a little sanctuary. I had flooded the entire sanctuary, standing water in there. It's 1.30 in the morning. I know even if I go home, I get my wet back. I start trying to clean this thing right now. There's no way I'm going to be able to get this cleaned up. We had an 8 o'clock service. I can't get it done. And, and I'm thinking, you know, what, what am I going to say when people walk in the church building here in a few hours? I'm trying to think of clever lines, you know. This morning, we are preaching on Noah. <laughs> Some of you have been reluctant to come down the aisle for baptism. <laughs> We're gonna bring baptism down the aisle towards you. You know. <laughs> Mostly, I'm just thinking, why can't we sprinkle? You know. <laughs> and I mean, I I, I didn't know what to, I did. The only thing that I could think of to do, I walked back into my office, 1.30 in the morning. I pick up the phone and I dialed John Lamb's number. And when he picked up, I said, Hey. Blood brother. <laughs> John Lamb lived 21 minutes south of the church. 22 minutes after I called him, he came rolling in to the parking lot in his truck with his wet back in the back, and a bunch of other deacons came rolling into the parking lot. And those guys were great. They came in. We just got to work and started cleaning up. And you know, they didn't make fun of me very much. And and. Uh, <laughs> After after a couple hours, uh, you know, we got it about as clean as we were going to get it. Got some fans on it, get it to dry, and uh, decided everybody better go home, catch a couple hours sleep for church. It's four o'clock something in the morning, and and uh, I'm waving goodbye, waving goodbye, thanks, thanks. And, and John Lamb was the last one to leave. And John Lamb came over, he put his arm around me, and uh, he said, he said, hey, <laughs> he said I'm glad you called me. He said you need to call me more often. he said you need to let me do what i can do so that you can do what you can do Now, as a young preacher i needed to hear that that's the way the church is supposed to work now your new young preacher shane is a lot smarter than i am and i'm pretty sure he's not going to be overflowing any baptistries but you listen, he's young and ministry is hard and this this job is big. Like your job as a church is to reach this city, the world for Jesus. And he can't do that on his own. He needs you to do what you can do so that he can do what he can do. So will you support him, pray for him, speak words of encouragement and appreciation to him, give him grace when he makes mistakes, jump in, serve alongside of him, follow his leadership, love his family, Elizabeth and his kids. Listen to me, every preacher needs a John Lamb. You be his blood sister, you be his blood brother. Support the new runner. That's the second thing on your to-do list. Here's the last. Seek the next runner. Seek the next runner. In our text, 2 Timothy 2.2, you remember? Uh, The old runner, Paul, has passed the baton to the new runner, Timothy, but then what does he say to do? He says, Timothy, start looking for the next runner. Start looking for reliable people that you can entrust that ministry leadership to. Timothy, you're going to carry on my ministry, but who will carry on yours someday? Jay has passed the baton to Shane. He'll carry on Jay's ministry, but who's going to carry on Shane's ministry someday? Your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do but someone you raise. Church, your job is to raise the next generation of ministers, the next generation of preachers and youth ministers and children's ministers and and missionaries. Jay passed the baton to Shane, but church, who are you passing the baton Which young people are you raising up to be those next vocational Christian leaders? Are you keeping your eyes open for young people with that kind of potential? Are you planting ideas in their head that maybe God will be calling them? Will you seek the next runner? One last story and I'm done. A few years ago, I had a friend named Chris Duncan who came to the Bible college where I serve and he preached in chapel and he told a story in his chapel sermon that I will never forget. Uh, My friend Chris was on staff at a church there in Las Vegas, and he told about a man named Mike that he had baptized just the week before. And I'm actually going to call this man Mike, I'm going to call him Mike the homeless guy, because Mike was homeless living there on the streets of Las Vegas. But Chris, in his chapel sermon, told us about a lady in his congregation. I'm going to call her the Las Vegas Sandwich Lady, because her ministry was to go out onto the streets of Las Vegas and to hand out sandwiches to the homeless. She met Mike. Mike began to come every week to get the sandwiches. They built a relationship. She started praying for Mike, and eventually she was able to lead this 50-year-old homeless man to Christ And my friend Chris got to baptize him. As I sat there listening to him tell the story in his sermon, I thought, wow, that's a, that's a great story. And then all of a sudden, it hit me like a lightning bolt out of the blue. I, I knew the rest of the story. I knew what Chris couldn't have known. I knew what Mike the Homeless Guy could never have known, and that is that his story actually started 60 years before in a little town called Gilbert, Arkansas, with a man named Walter Goodman. Walter Goodman was a part-time salesman, part-time preacher in Gilbert, Arkansas, population 100. And there was a, a young man there in Gilbert, Arkansas, named Roy Wheeler. He was a high schooler. He was an all-star basketball player. Roy Wheeler was dating Walter Goodman's daughter. And through the witness of the Goodman family, Roy Wheeler decided to give his life to Jesus Christ. He was baptized. And after Roy graduated from high school, Walter Goodman sat down with Roy Wheeler. and He said, Roy, what are you going to do with your life? Roy said, I, I don't know. And, and Walter Goodman said this. He said, well, I'll tell you what I think you ought to do. He said, I think you ought to go to Ozark Christian College. I think you ought to play basketball for him, and who knows? Maybe maybe God will make you a preacher. And Roy Wheeler said, okay. And so in August of 1950, Roy Wheeler enrolled as a student at Ozark Christian College. A few months into his freshman year, Roy Wheeler walked into the president's office there at the Bible College, President Edwin Strong, and he said, President Strong, I want you to help me find a preaching ministry. President Strong said, oh, Roy, I'm, I'm really glad you want to preach, but I'm not sure you're ready for that. You're just a freshman, only been here a little bit. And besides, I've, I've been watching these past few months, and it seems to me like like maybe the only two things you're interested in is basketball and girls. And Roy Wheeler said, oh, no, sir, you're, you're wrong. I'm interested in girls and then basketball. <laughs> and <laughs> President Strong laughed, and, and he, took, he took Roy Wheeler under his wing and began to mentor him. And sure enough, he did help Roy Wheeler get a preaching ministry. And when Roy Wheeler graduated from Ozark, he took a preaching ministry at a little church down in Paramount, uh, down in Amarillo, Texas. It's called Paramount Terrace Christian Church. this little church there in Amarillo, about 120 folks, Roy Wheeler, as he was getting ready to start, said, President Strong, what what should I preach when I get there? And he said, well, you just preach the Bible. Tell them that Jesus loves all kinds of people. Roy Wheeler went down there and he preached that. And today, that church in Amarillo runs over 7,000 people. Now, in the 1980s, there was a young man that walked in the doors of that church, Paramount Terrace Christian Church, and and this young man, a high schooler, his name was Judd Wilhite. Now, Judd Wilhite was addicted to alcohol. He was addicted to drugs. His life was falling apart. He had hit rock bottom, but. When he walked in the doors of, of that church, he was met by some folks there who had heard for a long time that Jesus loves all kinds of people. And so they just welcomed this stoner kid in. They embraced him, and they loved on him, and they began to answer his questions and help him pick up the pieces of his life. In fact, in fact, Roy Wheeler took Judd Wilhite under his wing and, and, and said, you know what, Judd, I think, I think maybe God wants you to be a preacher. And today, Judd Wilhite is the preacher of Central Christian Church in Las Vegas. That church runs over 20,000 people now because Judd's been preaching for a long time that Jesus loves all kinds of people. Now, now Judd's a friend of mine. I've known him for for quite a while. And Judd one time told me about a fella in his church named Cody. I'm actually going to call him Cody the fisherman because Cody was a professional fisherman until his life got grabbed by a crack addiction, and eventually he sold his fishing boat, he eventually sold his house to pay for the drugs, and Cody ended up homeless on the streets of Las Vegas. He was actually living in a field right across the street from Central Christian Church there in Vegas. At one point, Cody had gone three months without a bath. He would later say that he smelled so bad even the other homeless guys didn't want to hang around him. Now, Cody said that he had heard that church across the street there, they'd give hot food and a hot shower to anybody that walked in and asked for it. He didn't want anything to do with God, really, but, but he knew he needed a shower. And so one Sunday morning, Cody walked in the doors of Central Christian Church, and he was met there in the lobby of the church that morning by a lady named Michelle. Now, we're going to call her Michelle the soccer mom because she was just an ordinary soccer mom, a, a volunteer greeter in the lobby that day. And when she saw Cody walk in the door, she instantly knew he was homeless, dirty clothes, dirty face gaunt face, long beard, and she could smell him even across the lobby. But she'd heard a lot of sermons about how Jesus loves all kinds of people. So she went right up to him, first words out of her mouth. She said, you look like you need a hug. He was taken aback. He said, oh, lady, you don't want to hug me. I don't smell very good. She said, Jesus loves you and so do I. And she wrapped him up in a great big hug. Cody would later say that was the moment when God began to soften his heart. Two weeks later, Cody was baptized into Christ. Now fast forward four years. Cody is now married. Cody is clean and sober. Cody has a job. He's serving there at the church. When he hears one night on the news that the mayor of Las Vegas has just instituted a citywide policy, it is now illegal to feed the homeless on the streets of Las Vegas. Vegas was once voted as the meanest city in America to the homeless, and it was now a citywide law that you could not hand out food to homeless folks in any public place in the city. And Cody thought, that's not right. Jesus loves all kinds of people, and he decided to challenge the mayor in court. And so the mayor himself, of course, was was a lawyer. And on the day of the proceedings, the, the mayor and his entire legal team with their power suits and their power ties and their briefcase are on this side of the courtroom. And on this side of the courtroom is Cody the Fisherman and his one lawyer. And you know what the judge said? The judge said, Cody, you're right. This is unconstitutional. And she overturned the policy. And today it is legal to feed the homeless on the streets of Las Vegas because of Cody the Fisherman. And all of a sudden, as I sat there in chapel listening to my friend Chris Duncan preach the sermon, it hit me. The reason that he was able to baptize Mike, the homeless guy, was because of the Las Vegas sandwich lady who had started bringing sandwiches for him, and the reason it was legal for her to do that was because of Cody the fisherman, who had become a Christian when he was hugged by Michelle the soccer mom, who had heard so many sermons about how Jesus loves all kinds of people, from Judd Wilhite, who had experienced that love at Paramount Terrace Christian Church in Amarillo, Texas, under the ministry of Roy Wheeler, who was a preacher in the first place because a part-time salesman, part-time preacher, in Gilbert arkansas 60 years before had sat down and said to roy wheeler you know what roy i think maybe god wants to make you a preacher now i'm sure that walter goodman could never have known the ripples of that one conversation the thousands of lives that would be influenced for christ when he passed that baton but i know that walter goodman understood this your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do but someone you raise J. Allen Cook Jr. was raised in the home of a preacher and many years ago J. Allen Cook Sr. handed that baton to that young skinny guy who eventually became your preacher and I'm thankful that he did My hunch is you're thankful that he did. And so are the thousands of lives that Jay and Jane have influenced for Christ. My question for you, church, is this. Who are you raising up? Pass the baton. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the ministry of Jay and Jane. I thank you for the ministry of Shane and Elizabeth. And Father, I pray that you will use this church to raise up the next generation of those who will carry your word to the world. Send out laborers for the harvest field, for your glory, and for the world's good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.